It really is uh, critical for us to be able to share what God's doing in our life, to identify those things and share. As I spoke with you last week and read the article out of that one particular journal, uh, and basically the Bible tells us that uh, persecution uh, is on the way. And if you haven't experienced it yet, you certainly will. And it is bound to heat up for the Christian church. It certainly has around the world, in other places. And uh, we have, by God's grace, been pretty substantially immune from it. But the reality is, it is going to happen. And you and I uh, must be prepared. We must be uh People who, as Christians, can indeed make a difference and not faint in the face of persecution. We have some responsibilities. So I want to talk to you uh, again tonight out of this passage in Second or First Peter chapter three. Talk to you about when persecution comes and how shall we be prepared? Would you agree that it's necessary to be prepared? Yes. So we want to know how to be prepared, and this is. The Spirit of God, through His servant Peter, instructing us, saying these four things are essential if we are to be prepared to endure and to persevere in the face of persecution. Indeed, to be fruitful. It's not a matter of just hanging on. You know how people say, how are you? Well, I'm hanging on. It's more than that. And so I want to talk to you again tonight about that. If you read with me, beginning from verse 12 again. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So how will we stand firm? How will we indeed persevere? It's one thing for us to sit here and say, well, I'll persevere, I'll persevere. But if your faith has never really been tested... How do you know you're going to persevere? How do you know you are prepared to stand firm? Peter tells us there are four things that are necessary. We looked at the first two last week. I just want to review quickly with you what is the first thing that's essential if, in fact, we are to stand firm, that we are persevere to the end. Be eager to do what is good. Be eager to do what is right. Be a person who's passionate for what is good. In other words, we don't just pay lip service to what's good. We're passionate for what is good. We love what is good. We cling to what is good. We encourage what is good. We do what is good. And all those uh, ways we can express it. And he goes on to say in verse 13 that if we are known as people who do good, and everybody respects and likes and appreciates those who do good, right? Even a hostile world. We, Peter says that uh, you probably will not experience suffering and persecution if you do good. But, he says, 
Even if you are persecuted, you still are under what? God's blessing. God has still promised to meet all your needs, take care of you, provide for you, uh, and you indeed are blessed. So the first thing is be eager to do good. We must be people who are passionate for what is good and right. Secondly, in verse 15, he tells us that we are to, in our hearts, what? Set apart Christ as Lord. Uh, This afternoon I was reviewing this with somebody and we were just kind of going over these principles and I said, now what's the second point? And they said, in my heart, set aside Christ. (laughs) I thought, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. don't set him aside. In our hearts, we set him apart. That means that we sanctify him. That means we give him the, the place of preeminence that he sits on the throne. Because why? He is the Lord. He is the Lord. And so we we put him in the place of preeminence. We put our life in his hands. In our hearts. And uh, you remember Jesus' words to those who were following him, who professed to be disciples, who were calling him Lord, 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 Luke chapter 6. His rebuke to them was, why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I say? How do you know that he's Lord in your life, really? You obey him. You do what he says. It's real simple. He says the same thing in Matthew's gospel in chapter 7, verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. These are ominous words. We have to make sure that we truly have set him apart, set him apart in our hearts as Lord. Is he Lord in your life? Do you view him that way? Do you say, yes, Lord? Yes, Lord. Are you in the habit of bending your knee and bowing your will to his lordship? Because he says very simply, uh, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says, many will come to me in that day. Many will say, didn't we do all these great things? Didn't we do all this good? And his response is to them very simply, uh, never did I know you. Depart from me, not you doers of good. Depart from me, you doers of evil. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of people who do a lot of things in the name of the Lord when in fact Christ is not Lord of their life. They're being religious, they're going through the motions. They're pretending They're only faking themselves out. So the thing is, if we're going to be prepared, truly prepared, we must be people who are really, truly eager for that which is good. Secondly, we must truly set apart in our hearts Christ as Lord. The third thing we find in the second part of verse 15. Be prepared to give an answer. A preparedness to answer. Preparedness to answer. If our inner motive is obedience, and obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then we should indeed be prepared to give an answer to those who ask us. We should be prepared to defend the hope of salvation. Question. Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? And I'm not talking about a a vague, generalized sense. Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? 
And do you, out of obedience, share that with people? Are you able to do that? The word people, Peter uses here is uh, apologia, which is we get the word apologetic from, or to make a defense. We have the, the uh, whole branch of ministry and, and such called apologetics. Many of you know our dear beloved Greg Kokel, who is an apologist for the faith. And uh, so this is the same word he uses. It means basically to, to give an answer, to give a defense, to give an explanation. When people ask you, they look at your life, and they say, why are you what you are? Why are you a Christian? Why do you have a hope? Why do you believe this stuff? We must remember that anybody at any time may ask. You don't know who God is going to move. Our brother Martin shared with uh, this fellow at the, uh, at the gym. Got an opportunity to witness to him. But people are going to want to know. They're going to want to know why we have hope, why we have confidence, why we're different. The question is, are we different? Do you live your life in such a way that someone could accuse you of being a Christian? <laughs> really? Huh? Do we live our lives in such a way that people accuse you? You're a Christian. Ooh, how'd you know? I can tell by how you live your life. We are to live in such a way as to create uh, interest, curiosity, uh, a desire on the part of people to who we encounter in our daily lives for them to want to know. This is why part of being people who are eager to do good. But especially when trouble comes, especially when trials come. How do I live and comport myself when there are trials and struggles and difficulty? Do I fade from the scene quickly? Do I throw my hands up and say, where's God? God, I thought you loved me. I thought you were taking care of me. I've got troubles. I've got problems. Wah. Beloved, you and I, if you know God, if you know who He is, and if you know what His purposes are, and He's Lord in your life, and you're committed to what is right and good, then your life should be a testimony. No matter the circumstances, your life should be a testimony. Because you don't know who's watching. And God wants to use you and work with your life and your testimony in front of all the people who know us in every little uh, uh, life arena that we find ourselves involved in, every, every group that we find ourselves involved in. Would you agree with me to that? Yes. But especially when trouble comes, how, how do we live and how do we relate and how do we function when there's trouble in our life or when we're treated unfairly? People watch, don't they? People watch. In a hostile and suspicious world, it is inevitable that we will be called upon at some point or other to explain what and why we believe, how we can have confidence, how we can live our life the way we do. I don't know if you've ever been asked this, but people, people ask, do you believe in Adam and Eve? I say, Yes. Why? And I can explain to them why I believe in Adam and Eve. We need to be able to tell people what we believe and why we believe it. 
Can you give a rational defense of why you are a Christian? Can you give a rational defense for why you are a Christian? Can you explain to somebody why you are a Christian? And I don't mean that you say, well, Jesus loves me and I have Jesus in my heart. I've had people witness to me. And I, it's fascinating when, when I'm out and about and I have these, these opportunities every now and again to have people witness to me and I say, are you one of those Christians? Are you one of those born-agains? And they say, well, yes. I say, why? Invariably, they cannot tell me why. They can't tell me why. Beyond saying, well, Jesus loves me, and I have Jesus in my heart, and I just know that I am. That doesn't do it for me. Why do you believe? Why do you believe this stuff? Why do you believe this? If you can't explain it, if you don't know why... You're not prepared. You are not prepared. And yet, the scriptures tell us, what? To be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you. The question is, are we ready? Are we ready? Tragically, the majority of people I've encountered outside are not ready. Can you give substantial answers to some basic questions? I've given you these questions in your notes. I'm not going to give you the answers we'd be here for three weeks. But I've given them to you for you to research. And very simply, you have the questions. Now, as you read your Bible, you're looking for the answers. You're looking for everything that will address these questions. And you can formulate, if you will, uh, an accurate and a rational response to these questions. These are questions that people ask. These are questions that people want to know. Is Christianity rational? Does it make sense? Does it answer life's questions? Or is Christianity just a jumping off a cliff with, with my blindfold on, a blind leap in the dark? Typically, people say, when, you, when you're talking about becoming a Christian, they say, you just want me to just, just believe this? You just want me to take a blind leap of faith? No. I want you to understand that Christianity is rational, it's logical, it makes sense, and it's true. And I can explain why. Can you? Is there a God? A lot of people asking that question. Is there a God? And then a corollary question is, is, there, is that God good? Can I trust him? People are full of doubt. They don't know. And we're the only ones who have the goods that can tell them. Would you agree? So the question again is, can you give a rational explanation. Can you answer these questions? Can you help people know what the truth is? Is Jesus Christ God? I want to get a hold of Peter Jennings. <laughs> all the work, all the money, all the expense, all the interviews, he danced around the main issue. Never addressed it. Is Jesus Christ God? How do you know he's God? Can you prove it? Can you explain this? Here's one. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Did Jesus rise from the dead? How do you know? Can you give a rational defense for that? Can you sit down with somebody and explain to them that the resurrection is, in fact, a historical event? 
not some myth. Is the Bible God's word? Or is it an outdated, musty, old, irrelevant book? These are substantial questions. These are questions you and I should be able to answer and give people rational, substantial answers. Are miracles possible? Do science and scripture conflict? I mean, that's a huge question today, isn't it? Huge question today. Evolution or creationism? Can we teach these? Can we teach both side by side in the schools? Why does God allow suffering and evil? That's a huge question. Perennial question. Can you give somebody an answer? Can you help them understand that? How is Christianity different from other religions? Oh, they're all the same. No, they're not. I talked to a fellow at the, at the, at, at the club I, gym I go to, and we were talking. He's, he's a Japanese guy, and I was talking to him about coming to church and being a Christian and why it's so important, and he needs to be saved from his sins, and he's a sinner, and he's going, ooh, ooh, ooh. So I said, what do you believe? And he says, well, you know, I believe it all. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a this, I'm a that. And I said, no, you can't. There's only one way. I said, when you investigate all those other religions, they don't all say the same thing. They're all divergent, incredibly so. He said, what makes Christianity so different? I said, the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, and all the rest, L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> Beloved, if you are to be ready, if you are to be ready to give answers, if you are to be ready to defend the hope of salvation, if you're ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you, this must mean one thing, it means preparation. It means preparation. It means Bible study. It means memory work. It means prayer. It means spiritual effort. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Christians must study their Bibles. Christians must study their Bibles. Let me say it again. Christians must study their Bibles, not just cursorily read them. Oh, I did my devotional reading today. What did you read? Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> we laugh. We laugh because it's, it's, it's tragically true. What did you study today? What did God speak into your heart today? What did you learn today? We've got to study the Bible, study about God, study about Jesus Christ, study about His salvation, study about His promises. Study. I've been studying the Bible for 25 years. I'm more thrilled about it today than I ever was. I open it up, I see things. I've read passages a thousand times. I read them a thousand and one times. I still see things I never saw. The Bible is the most exciting book you could ever hope to read. It's the most exciting book you'd ever hope to know. It's the most exciting book you could ever hope to study and invest yourself in. And when you do, your life changes. 
Beloved, if we know our faith, if we know what we believe, if we know why we believe it, and if we'll pray, oh my, all a part of being a ready witness. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. He said this in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, pray that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me, that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. You think Paul knew the word? You think Paul knew the word? Did he know the Old Testament law and prophets? Backwards and forwards, I'm sure. He spent 10 years after his conversion putting it all together, coming to grips until Barnabas went to get him and bring him and God had readied him for ministry and for service. The point is, Here's a guy that knows the word. Here's a guy that knows the truth. Here's a guy that knows the doctrine. Here's a guy that wrote half the New Testament. And he says, pray that words will be given me. Colossians, he, pray, he, he asked the Colossians in chapter 4, pray for us that God may open a door for our message. God, let my light shine. Let me live my life in such a manner that people want to know so that I can tell them why I'm a Christian, that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Are those relevant verses? The great tragedy is that most professing believers do not know what they believe, let alone why they believe it. Most cannot defend their faith. Most cannot defend their faith. They know little about Jesus Christ. They know little about what makes him so unique. And they know little about what makes him so superior. Few Christians today can witness adequately and lead anyone to Jesus Christ, a saving knowledge of Christ. Most will bumble through it. Most will just say, well, just come to church. And maybe the pastor will do it for me. That's a tragedy. That's the condition of the church. That's why we have the battles we have. That's why we have to call George Nakano. Say, vote against these bills. By the way, in the last two votes, he abstained, which is interesting. Few are willing to take the time or invest the effort to study God's word to learn the truth. Most are just not willing to pay the price. To learn about God, to learn about Jesus, to prepare themselves to be dynamic witnesses for Christ. Most Christians just quite simply are not willing to pay the price. I talk to people every day, even in our own church, sadly. Even in our own church. And I say, did you pray? Did you pray today? What did you pray about? Did you, did you study the word today? What did God say to you? More times than not, I get a negative response. Well, I, I, I meant to. I didn't have time. I just kind of got away from me. Uh, I can't remember what I read. Beloved, that ought not to be. If you and I are to be prepared so that when persecution does come, maybe in your own little environment or wholesale persecution of the church, if we're to be prepared, we must be able to begin, be able to give an answer and a defense. And when we give people these answers, how are we to give them, how do we answer them? What does Peter say? How are we to answer them? With gentleness and respect, right? With gentleness and respect. 
Not arrogantly, not pridefully, not antagonistically, not uh, uh, adversarially. Gentleness and respect. Gentleness, a spirit of, of humility, a spirit of tenderness, a spirit of care, and yet not, that's not wimpish, it's courageous with strength. Gentleness does not put up with sin, it doesn't put up with shame, it doesn't put up with license and indulgence, but it does do all it can to relieve and correct evil and mistreatment. Sadly, too often, witnessing today is done in a spirit of superiority and or arrogance, argument, controversy. How many times have, have you been witnessing somebody you see yourself drawn into an argument? We've just not accomplished anything right there. We're not to argue with people. We're to present the truth. But you've got to have eyes of compassion and look at that person as someone who's perishing, someone who's in the dark, someone who God has brought to you. Gentleness, respect. The word respect comes from the Greek word which we get fear. I suspect it's not just to respect those people that we're sharing with or we're witnessing with, but also that we fear God lest we misrepresent His truth. That we fear God, that we might handle the word of truth accurately. We don't want to twist God's word. Spirit of reverence for God and His word for many is all but forgotten. The truth of His salvation is diluted, it's twisted, to make oneself more acceptable, recognized, tragic. Well, but if we're to be prepared, if we're to be prepared, as well as if to answer persecution when it comes, we are to bear a clear and strong witness for Jesus Christ, but to do so with gentleness and reverence for God and respect for the one that we're sharing with. We're not to argue with people. Not to fight them. By bearing a strong and gentle witness, those who oppose us will be better able to understand and hopefully appreciate why we hold on to this glorious hope we have as our salvation. And maybe even some of them will get saved. Maybe even some of them will get saved. So, beloved, we can properly, we can carefully, we can thoughtfully, reasonably, biblically give everyone who asks us a clear reason for why we're a Christian. Why am I a Christian? Why am I a Christian? Why do I have this hope? Why do I persevere? We want to be able to explain these things to people. If you can't do that rationally, you can't understand it fully and clearly and articulate these things, and you get into some hostility or persecution and attack against yourself, guess who's going to crumble? You are. You're going to crumble. Absolutely. Because if you can't articulate what and why you believe to be understood by someone else, you may not even be convinced enough yourself that you're a Christian. That's tragic. You can't articulate it, can't make it clear, can't make sense out of it. 
And if you fall into doubt, you're not spiritually prepared, you don't have on your armor, the belt of truth, the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, and so forth. You're going to get killed. We're useless. We're dead in the water. What happened to the salt that loses its saltiness? It's good for nothing. It's got to be thrown out. So, beloved, to be effective in standing firm against a hostile world, to be firm, to be effective, we must, we must have a passion for what's right and good, set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, and have a preparedness to answer. We must study the Word. And fourthly, we are also to keep a clear conscience. Verse 16. Keep a clear conscience. What does that mean? It means that your conscience isn't accusing you. You're not guilty of anything. Keep a clear conscience. Your conscience is that inward voice that either accuses you or excuses you. Your conscience is that marvelous mechanism that God has planted in you to act as a source of conviction or a source of affirmation. If you have a good conscience, it'll be telling you that all is well. You'll be at peace. No anxiety, no fear, no trouble. If you have a clear conscience, it'll be reminding you. If you have a bad conscience, however, it will be reminding you that all is not well because there is something wrong. There's sin in your life. And it will pick at you and pick at you and pick at you. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Conscience just nags you. That little voice goes, ooh, it's not good. Things aren't good. Things aren't good. And if you don't deal with it, I mean, that's, people, people, people get fear take over their lives, anxiety take over their lives. It all comes back from there. Repentance, genuine repentance is the key. The only way you can have a clear conscience, the only way is to have a life that is holy, righteous, good, pure, decent, upright, above reproach. That's the only way to have a clear conscience. But you see, if you're already passionate for what is good, that shouldn't be a problem. Isn't that true? That shouldn't be a problem. So when you face criticism, you face hostility and persecution, you don't have any anxiety, you don't have any fear, you don't have any guilt. Because you have a clear conscience. This is so important. You see, if you're living a sinful life, if you're not zealous for goodness, if Jesus isn't Lord in your life, and you're living a life that misrepresents and slanders Christ or brings a reproach on Him, persecution comes against you and against your faith, you're going to feel a very, very heavy weight of guilt because it's really what we deserve. And you're going to be dead in the water in terms of being able to witness and have a credible witness. We go back to that same word, hypocrite, right? People say, why should I believe what you say? You say, because it's the truth. Well, if it's the truth, why don't you do it? Well, no one's perfect. See my bumper sticker? 
Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. I hate that bumper sticker. It's a cop-out. Plain and simple, it's a cop-out. Well, I'm not perfect, I'm not perfect. Jesus says what? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, if your conscience is bothering you, if there's sin in your life, you do not have a clear conscience, there will be no defense. No defense. You'll have a weak and compromised witness. But if your conscience is clear, you won't be troubled. Your witness can be powerful. Because why? It's not compromised. Clear conscience. When I'm criticized, and I'm criticized a lot, my first response is always to look into my heart and to see if that criticism is valid. Is this valid? If I can say I have a clear conscience, then I have no problem, I have no anxiety, I have no fear, I'm not troubled, But uh, because there's nothing there that, that convicts me, nothing there that criticizes me. Brings me no pain. Can't produce guilt. But if, on the other hand, I'm accused of something and somehow persecuted as a result, I look into my heart and I say, yes, that's a valid accusation. That's a valid accusation. Then guilt rises up. Do you remember when David was confronted by Nathan? David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and to cover up, you know, she got pregnant, and then tried to get... Uh, Uriah, her husband, brought him back from the front to ha- have him sleep with, with Bathsheba and hopefully cover up and be his child. And, and he wouldn't do it. You know, he was an honorable man. He said, no, if my troops are out there, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to take comfort with my wife. And so then he sends Uriah back out and has him killed. Huge, massive plot. And David's just going along. He's just doing it. He's going to get off scot-free, Right? Until God calls Nathan the prophet to come and what? Act as his conscience and convict him of it. Beloved, we must maintain a clear conscience because a defiled conscience cannot be at ease. A defiled conscience cannot withstand the onslaught of hostility because you, no, you have nothing to lean on. There is no good thing that defiled conscience. And Peter says in verse 16, same as he says in chapter 2, verse 12, that when they slander you, make sure they slander you for doing what's good and right. Not that they slander you for doing evil or wrong, but for doing what's good and right. Because your good behavior will vindicate you. If not certainly in this life, then in the next. It will vindicate you. And the accusers will stand ashamed of their attacks, again, if not in this life, in the next. All of us, I'm sure at some point, have experienced accusing somebody for doing wrong when they actually did right, and then finally the truth came out and we were embarrassed and ashamed that we did that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Which option does he recommend? 
suffer for doing what's right. He says, why? Because you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. God gets glorified by it. You get strengthened. You get blessed, eternally rewarded. But if you get persecuted, if you suffer for doing what's wrong, you deserve it. There's no big thing in that. That's nothing to claim. So the choice is up to us. Either I'm going I'm to suffer for doing what's right, or I'm going to suffer for what is wrong. Peter says, choose suffering for doing what's right. Be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake, because you are blessed. God's hand will be upon you, and he'll take care and provide for you. So, we know how to prepare for, we know how to face a hostile world and persecution now, right? Four things. What are they? What's the first one? Be eager to do good. How many are eager to do what's right and good? How many developing a passion for goodness? Oh, not everybody. Okay. We'll have to preach that message again. What's the second point? Is Christ Lord in your life? Really? You understand how important it is? What's the third point? Be prepared to give an answer. Know what you believe. Know why you believe it. Be able to tell people. Give a defense for the faith. It does you no good to say you're a Christian and not be able to articulate what you believe and why you believe it. It does you no good. Because in that basis, you have absolutely no confidence that in fact you are a Christian if you don't know what you believe and why you believe it. You're just mindlessly following people who probably don't know what they believe either. I can't impress upon you how critical this is. And what's the fourth element? If we are to indeed be prepared for persecution, keep a clear conscience. Keep a clear conscience. Four very clear, simple principles that are absolutely necessary to our lives, beloved. Okay? Any questions? Any comments? Any applications? Yes, Alita. There's, there's a certain amount of, of apprehension that isn't wrong. Obviously, Jesus experienced that. You know, but I think at some point, we, we recognize that. And what does he do after that? Right. He says, that not my will, yours be done. No, but you're, you're, focusing, you're focusing on what? On the problem rather than stepping back as Jesus stepped back. says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Yeah, yeah, big time stress, big time stress. Anybody else? Felix. When a cop comes and pulls you over. 
Yeah. You want to have a clear conscience. If a cop arrests you and if, if, he, if he stops you, pulls you over and asks you if you've ever been arrested? Clear conscience, no one can lay anything at your doorstep. You have a clear conscience. Well, yeah, the world does, but you know what your conscience is. You're not doing anything wrong. Okay? Point is, you're not doing anything wrong. Mike? If there's obvious, if, there's, if you see obvious sin in their life and they say they're clear conscience, they say there's no sin in their life? They're referring to their clear conscience, but if they're not saved, are, can, can, is their clear conscience the same type of thing? Well, that's when you use the law. That's when you walk them through the Ten Commandments and, and let the law convict their heart. That's what I do. I just say, well, let me ask you a couple questions here. You have a clear conscience. Clear conscience about this, this. Have you ever participated in this, that? And if they're not saved, I, then I'm going to tell them, then, then this is sin. What are you doing with it? How, how, do, you, do you just sweep it under the carpet? Where do you go to get forgiven? Um, well, people aren't thinking that way. We just We keep massing up, massing up guilt. And greater and greater and greater anxieties over this guilt and stuffing it down and stuffing it down rather than coming and confessing it and being free. So I just walk them through the law, Ten Commandments, and just begin to say, how about this in your life? How about this in your life? And the Bible says that, that we have broken the law at every point. I mean, that's a guarantee. This person's broken the law at every point. Well, I never commit a murder. Have you ever been angry in your heart so that you could have done it if you had a gun right there? Yeah. Yeah. Then you did it. It's as good as done. Because what? It's motive and intent, isn't it? You would have done it. You're guilty. And the law will convict that person. But you just have to know what to use. Dale. I have a quick question. It's something you brought up like a week or so ago when you were saying... Something I brought up a week or so ago? How do you expect me to remember back that long? Well, it, it, it's something that, that, that you have said a couple times before. You say, you know, learning how to pray, we need to study prayers. And you say we have 150 prayers basically in the Psalms. So make those personal. I have a difficult time in relating to what you mean, make those personal. I mean, to, to put Dale in the place of, you know... Make them your prayers. The Psalms... Uh, yeah. I told Dale and, and probably a number of others of if you talk to me about your prayer life, I'll say start with the prayers of the Bible. Do a study in all the prayers of the Bible, just right from the beginning to the end. Read all the prayers of the Bible, and then begin to make them your prayers. Make them personal. Say I, I, own them. Uh, in Psalms, there's 150 
psalms or 150 prayers that God has given to us so we, he, we would know how to pray to him. Isn't that nice of him? He says, pray this way. So just you can use the psalms as a prayer book, and you personalize them. And uh, some of them are going to work more easily given a situation and others not. But, uh, you know, rather than, uh, I mean, you put yourself in Israel's place. Have you ever been disobedient? Okay. Horn. Uh, I think that there's, there, there is no other way that to practice your witness but to be in mini church and take turns asking those questions. Being in mini church is a good way asking, to practice. Asking those questions. Right. Being in mini church is a good way to practice with other people and, and, and get to you're know never, how to answer. You put yourself in that, that situation. You're never going to have an answer. That's right. You've got to practice. Good. Good. When? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can lie. You can lie so much and justify it for so long that you can. The Bible talks about uh, the people who have seared their conscience. Yeah, you can still. Yeah, their seared conscience is not greater than God's ability to unsear it. You know, I, I, I'd still hold out to until Jesus comes back. Still keep praying for him. Still want to have opportunity to share with him. Uh, so, God's greater than everything. Okay? All right, shall we study the word? Yes, Julie. One last question. Comment. Okay. You feel a burning. Okay, she's a burning. I'm burning. Um, for probably 23 years... You know, I got saved when I was very young, um, 18, 17, somewhere in there. Uh, I started off praying, you know, for myself. God bless me, take care of me, touch me. I pray that way. <laughs> um, I forgot about myself for the past five years, and I started praying for everybody else. As a matter of fact, um, you know, today I saw a, a, one of those those little uh, SUV Subaru uh, SUV uh, Mercedes Benz all smashed, and uh, another car looked like it rear-ended it. And I was like, you know, all I could think of was, oh, you know, that poor person that hit that car because I hit a Mercedes once ten years ago, <laughs> and it costs a lot of money when you don't have insurance and you hit a Mercedes. Yeah, they're real expensive. <laughs> um, basically. I forgot about myself, basically, as far as I, what I, when I pray for myself, I pray, you know, that I can be, have the strength to bless somebody else or to be able to be a comfort to someone or have the compassion they need. And, and, when, and, and my whole life I was having problems. And all of a sudden when I wasn't looking, God just, I've been praying for God to put his arms around other people and hold them close. And he reached out and put his arms around me when I needed him the most. And I just want to share that with everybody, to know that if you ever feel that God's not listening, just wait just a little bit longer. You know, not in human time, but in God's time, just wait. Because he's never, never late, and he never, never forgets you. Amen. And I, I just want to share that. All right. Thanks, girl.
Let's stand and let's praise God before we dismiss.